At the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus ignited a controversy when he ascended the Temple Mount in the middle of the feast and began teaching. The Jews marveled at his learning, wondering how someone untrained by one of their celebrated rabbis could have such knowledge. Jesus answered that his teaching came from God. Well, at this point, a warrant for Jesus' arrest was issued. The chief priests and the Pharisees dispatched officers to come and arrest Jesus. Imagine, if you will, a movie where the scenes shift back and forth between Jesus teaching the crowds and a very dark conspiracy of rulers plotting his downfall. Temple guards suddenly leave the Jewish headquarters, winding their way through the streets like wolves hunting their prey. The soundtrack drums our heartbeats up to a crescendo. The scene suddenly shifts back to Jesus standing and teaching the most public place in all of Jerusalem. At this point, we are gripping our seats, palms sweating, whispering under our breath, Jesus, just run, hide, they're coming for you. Our adrenaline is pumping, and we come now to the climactic moment. It's the final day of the feast in Jerusalem, and Jesus stands up before the whole crowd, and he makes a bold declaration. And if you thought the Jewish rulers were mad, now they are furious. There's only one solution left, execution. He must die. Now, if you would, just press pause on that scene. To really understand it, we need a little knowledge of chemistry, geography, and agriculture. The main constituent of our Earth's hydrosphere is an inorganic, odorless, transparent, colorless chemical substance known to chemists as H2O, or water. Water is the lifeblood of our planet. It covers 71% of the Earth's surface. Water is essential for all life forms. We know that water cycles through our biosphere, through evaporation, transpiration, condensation, precipitation, and runoff. Water billows in the skies above. It permeates the air that we breathe. It streams to the ground beneath our feet. Water is everywhere. In fact, the majority of fresh water used by humans is not used for drinking, but for agriculture. Without water, we would have no plants, no fruit trees. Without water, all animal food, all food sources would perish. Water is necessary to all life. Today, we use water for heating, cooling, sanitation, cooking, transportation, sporting, and energy generation. Early human civilizations like Sumer and Mesopotamia, Mohenodaro in the Indus Valley, and Ur of the Chaldees sprang up around great water sources, great rivers. Today's largest ships float 24,000 containers on water to destinations all around the world. And those containers are the size of the trailers on semi-trucks. 24,000 of them can fit on one ship. We use water for everything. The water that's generated by the turgid water pouring into the Hoover Dam meets the electrical needs of 8 million people. 
And I'm told by a chemist and a professor of global health that clean drinking water and vaccines have doubled life expectancy on our planet. So it's safe to say that without water, life as we know it would come to an abrupt end. This is why we don't live on Mars. Fact is, we don't think a whole lot about water because it just comes gushing out of our taps, right? It just fills our tubs. We don't think about it. It's just there. It's just there. But in the ancient world, particularly in Israel, people had an ever-present sense of their reliance, their utter reliance on water. Water was a commodity that was extremely valuable, and it had to be stewarded and protected. The Jews actually built large cisterns for capturing and storing rainwater. These cisterns, if you've ever seen them, resemble those old milk jugs that they used to put out on your doorstep. With large bulbous bottoms, a little narrow neck on the top, a little small opening at the top would let in very little sunlight, so there was very little chance of the sun promoting the growth of harmful bacteria. The water that was stored in those cisterns was relied upon for months on end during the dry seasons. Again, it was a very carefully stewarded commodity. But the question is why? Why do they have to be so careful with water? And to answer that question, we've got to go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. In Deuteronomy 11, we are going to learn a little bit about the geography of Israel. Israel, as you probably know, has one major water source, one major river, I'm sorry, one major river, not source, river, and that's the Jordan. The Jordan, of course, bisects the land flowing from the Sea of Galilee up north and down into the uh, the Dead Sea in the south. However, unlike the Nile or the Euphrates or the Mississippi or many other rivers around the world, the Jordan did not meet the agricultural needs of those living along her banks. The Nile runs through a vast, flat floodplain. And that Nile seasonally will overflow its banks and it waters the surrounding farmlands. Likewise, the Euphrates, or the Mississippi for that matter, lie in a great big plain. And the surrounding land can be irrigated with channels that just snake their way through the land and they run like arteries out into the farmlands and bring all that water out into the soil. But the Jordan actually sits in a rift that cuts deep into the land. It's rather difficult to get water up out of the rift and onto the surface of the land. It requires technology like Archimedes' screw to actually bring that water up and try to get it up onto the surface of the land. For an analogy, think of the difference between the Mississippi and the Colorado rivers. If you've ever crossed the Mississippi, you know, there's just these great big plains out there and there's a river that just runs right through the middle. But if you've seen the Colorado, you know that it flows through canyons, including the Grand Canyon. So how do you get the water up out of the canyon onto the land? That's the difficulty. Consequently, Israel's agricultural life was not sustained by the Jordan. It was dependent on seasonal rains out of heaven. 
When God brought Israel up out of Egypt into the up out of Egypt into the land of Israel, He explained that the geographical situation in Canaan was going to look very different than what they had experienced down in Egypt, and that's what He's going to explain now in Deuteronomy eleven ten through twelve. Of course, again the Nile flooded its banks, but now verse ten: for the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. So it's not like that. Because of the broad, flat plains surrounding the Nile, irrigation was possible. But don't expect that in the land that I'm taking you into. Keep reading verse 11. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that Yahweh your God cares for. Look at those words. The Lord Yahweh your God cares for this land. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This really is a lovely passage that instructs Israel to depend on Yahweh for seasonal rain. They will not be able to depend on the Jordan. You must depend on Yahweh to send you rain out of the heavens. They must constantly lift up their gaze to their God for abundant rain. And friends, Yahweh is reliable. In fact, Joseph just read that this morning with the New Age Covenant. Yahweh is reliable. He loves the land of Canaan. He watches over it day and night through the four seasons. And the emphasis at the end of the verse, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, strongly implies Yahweh's care for Israel and for her agricultural seasons from beginning to end. Your God cares for you. Now, as an aside... Observe that God is deliberately reorienting Israel's pagan indoctrination down in Egypt. Egypt's most influential religion, a religious narrative rather, is the myth of Osiris. Perhaps you've read it. Osiris, a primeval Egyptian king, was murdered by his brother Set, who usurped his throne. However, Isis, Osiris' wife, discovered how temporarily resuscitate her husband's body posthumously and figured out a way to conceive with him their son Horus. Well, eventually Horus succeeded in toppling Set and reclaiming his father's throne. As the story grew and was embellished over the years, Osiris' death and resuscitation came to be associated with the annual flooding of the Nile. The Nile comes up and it fertilizes the surrounding farmland. Osiris, the Nile, represented the male reproductive principle. The surrounding land was the female principle, absorbing all the life-giving seed of Osiris. And together, they annually brought forth life and abundance in Egypt. In other words, the Nile was divine. The Nile was a god. So here in Deuteronomy 11, what God is doing is removing His people from Egypt where their gods are embodied in nature. He overthrew all those nature gods with the plagues, of course. 
He's drawing them up out of Egypt, and he's going to reorient their whole viewpoint, so they have to look above for the source of life. They cannot look to the river any longer. And of course, we know that at times when people fell into transgression, as in the days of Ahab, God's prophet Elijah said there's going to be no more rain. No more rain. Because you have forsaken your God. So, with that in mind, let's turn back to John chapter 7. Let's go to John 7, and let's also try to understand a little bit about Israel's agricultural cycles. John chapter 7. Israel's calendar was oriented to the land's agricultural cycles. And the land actually had two major seasons. First of all, the rainy season. And the rainy season ran from October to early May. So we would be in the rainy season now. We got rain today, all right? The dry season ran from May to early October. So Israel's new year does not arbitrarily begin on January 1st the way ours does. Actually, the new year, the agricultural year, began when the first rains fell in October. And Israel had a really keen sense, derived from passages like Deuteronomy 11, that the new year began. It began when Yahweh, who loved his land, sent rain out of heaven. That's when it began. And those first rains, the lighter rains, as they were called, softened the ground. And they allowed the ox-pulled plows to cut a channel into the heart of the earth. That moist soil that was turned over by the plow became the incubation chamber for little seeds that were scattered by the farmers. After those seeds were scattered, then came the heavy rains. And those rains sent those plants just bursting through the soil. By March and April, a first harvest of barley was ready. Wheat followed in April and May. And in May, the dry season began. And with the dry season, summer fruit began to ripen with the June heat. At the end of the dry season, the grape harvest had been largely gathered. And the olive harvest, which comes last around September and early October, was then gathered. Once the farmers had gathered in the final harvests of grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, all their crops, they would then journey to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they would celebrate Yahweh, who sustained their land through the previous year. They would also anticipate how Yahweh, who loved his land, would send the new rains and would launch the agricultural cycle once more. So when we think of the Feast of Tabernacles that we've arrived at here in John 7, think of it like Thanksgiving and New Year's Day rolled into one holiday. That's what they're celebrating. This is Thanksgiving, and this is the new year. And this is the moment then when Jesus comes to Jerusalem in John chapter 7. The feast now draws to an end. The early rains are on the horizon as clouds billow up from the eastern Mediterranean. The time has come for Yahweh's bountiful waters to fall again from heaven and to create streams in the desert. 
Yahweh will fill those empty cisterns. Yahweh will restore life to Palestine's desiccated soils. Yahweh will bring renewal, new rains, new crops, and new life. It's a grand time of year. Well, how was this feast then celebrated? Well, understand that Jerusalem in Jesus' day was much smaller than it is today. It actually stretched out over two hills. And between those two hills, down at the bottom, was a pool called the Pool of Siloam. And in that pool were the collected waters that fell during the rainy seasons, as well as water that came in from the Gihon Spring. And that pool, at this time of year, would have languished. It was the end of the dry season. It was waiting for new rains to come and fill it up again. And there was a street that wound up from the pool to the Temple Mount, which sat high above. The temple just sat perched up there like a crown on top of the city. And during the second temple period, the Jews developed a water ceremony. This ceremony was designed to offer thanks for the water that had been given the previous year and to anticipate God's provision of new rains. Now, the Mosaic Law did not actually require this ceremony, all right? but there's certainly nothing wrong with it. We have Christmas, Christmas ceremonies, we have Thanksgiving ceremonies, and celebrations, these are perfectly appropriate. And this ceremony served a very good purpose to inculcate gratitude in the hearts of the people for all of their harvest. Now, with crowds lining the streets all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, a priest would make his way down to the pool. He would step into that greatly diminished source of water with a golden flagon. And he would dip that into the water, draw it out, and then he would travel the street back up to the temple. As he walked along, he was accompanied by trumpets and flutes, and the crowds would throng around and fall into formation behind him, singing loudly. The priest would then ascend the massive staircase that wound its way upward to the temple per tie above Jerusalem. With that great procession following, the priest would then pass through what was then called the water gate on the south side of the inner court. And as he passed through, there was the blast of three sounds on the shofar, or the ceremonial trumpet. And as he came into the temple precincts, the temple choir would begin singing the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, Every male pilgrim who had journeyed from afar would hold up in his right hand a lulab. The lulab was a cluster of will, myrtle, and palm twigs bound together with a cord. And with his left hand, every male would raise a piece of citrus fruit, symbolizing the abundant harvest that God, Yahweh, had provided. And all the assembly at that point would cry out three times, Give thanks to Yahweh! Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to Yahweh. The water then carried by the priest was emptied into a silver bowl mixed with wine. And then it was poured out on the great altar as a libation of worship and a prayer that God would soon visit his land again 
with the early rains. And that all happened on the final day of the feast. Well, it was at this climactic moment of the feast that signaled the beginning of a new year when Yahweh, who loved His land, would revisit His land with rain, that Jesus comes and gives His great declaration. The ceremony for many Jews anticipated the coming of a messianic age when a stream of water would flow from a sacred rock that covered the earth. I'm sorry, that the rock didn't cover the earth, the stream covered the earth. Both Ezekiel and Zechariah spoke of this eschatological river that would flow and cover the earth. Ezekiel had a vision in which water pours from the temple, cascading down from the mountain to the east. Ezekiel says, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Water flowing from the temple is also a symbol of life itself. Zechariah spoke of, quote, a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. All of that is in the background now as Jesus makes his bold declaration. So, come again to Jerusalem. It is humming with people. People are in the streets. People are bustling around. People are singing. And at this very moment, press play on our movie. Here comes the temple guard like wolves. They are prowling through the streets. They are hunting Jesus down. They dare not let him take advantage of the assembled crowds. They dare not let him further his messianic agenda. Our hearts are pumping. Adrenaline is racing. What will become of Jesus? They're hunting for him. And that's the moment that we reach in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do we understand what Jesus just did? Jesus just reoriented that whole ceremony and hundreds of years of Jewish history to himself. It's all about me. Yahweh is the source of Jewish life. Yahweh sends abundant rains out of heaven and rivers of life-giving water into those Jewish fields. And Jesus just identified himself as Yahweh, the source of living water. I am Yahweh, and I love this land. Friends, if water is the most important element that sustains all life on planet Earth, then the man from Nazareth just made himself the source of water that sustains all life. You really have to appreciate the sheer audacity of Jesus' action. He has just commandeered the most symbolic moment in the whole Jewish agricultural cycle. He's just taken it over to himself. Jesus is the source of life. Or 
He is a total lunatic, a narcissist, attempting to upstage one of the most important and consequential moments in the whole Jewish calendar. That's what's actually going on in this passage. It's really quite stunning. And friends, Jesus is not done. Six months later, Jesus will return to Jerusalem for a Passover meal. That meal celebrated the exodus and the foundation of the nation. And Jesus once again will spontaneously reorient that whole meal to himself. It's all about me. This do as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. This would be sort of like somebody showing up on Christmas Day and saying, you know what, all of your Christmas celebrations are all about me. Then they came back on Easter and said, all of your Easter celebrations are all about me. That's what Jesus is doing when he shows up in Jerusalem. Is he insane? Is he delusional? Well, how will the people respond? What are you going to do with this guy? John is going to answer that question momentarily, but first, in verse 39, John is going to offer us a theological interpretation of what Jesus was actually doing. What is he doing? Well, verse 39, now this, what's the this? This refers to the statement at the end of verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Verse 39, now, this, is, this he said about the Spirit. Those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's what he's talking about. Rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. Well, that is a reference to the coming and dwelling, life-giving fullness of the Spirit. That's what that's all about. Now, of course, we know the history. Jesus was crucified six months later. He was buried. He was resurrected. He ascended. He was glorified. And when he was glorified, Jesus and the Father sent the Spirit like a mighty rushing wind. And here the Spirit is referred to as a mighty rolling river sent by Jesus at the moment of his glorification. I'll not take the time to develop a whole theology of the Spirit at this point, but clearly Jesus' point is that when we come to him, like the woman of the well for a drink of living water, Jesus responds by pouring out on us his Spirit like a river. And if you want the historical record of the Spirit's coming, then read the book of Acts. That's the historical record. And if you want the theological explanation of the Spirit's coming, then study the doctrine of sanctification. That's the effect of the coming of the Spirit. Both involve the coming of the Spirit when Jesus was glorified at His ascension. The Holy Spirit, friends, is mentioned some 40 times in the book of Acts And whereas the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at the inauguration of his ministry, the Holy Spirit suddenly falls abundantly on all of Christ's disciples, and he empowers their witness. 
In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit enabled disciples to preach the gospel in other tongues. He enables Peter to preach. He was involved in the conversion of the Samaritans. He was involved in the conversion of Paul. He was involved in the conversion of Cornelius. He separated Paul and Barnabas from the mission field. He directed Paul and Silas on the mission field. The Holy Spirit is ubiquitous in Acts. He is guiding and pushing the whole thing forward. The Holy Spirit just energizes Acts like your soul animates your body. He is like the falling rain that just sends all those crops erupting from the ground. He is the source of spiritual life. That is the historical record of what Jesus is referring to here. I am going to send the Spirit. And again, what is the theological explanation? Well, look at the doctrine of sanctification. That's what the Spirit does. Remember when we were in Romans chapter 8? You recall how often the Spirit showed up? Just listen to a few verses. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I'm free from sin when I'm living under the power and influence of the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, which the Spirit is going to do for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps our infirmities, our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You're getting the point? Jesus is going to send His Spirit. And His Spirit is going to wash over you and transform you. That's the river of living water. The Spirit just fills Romans 8 like your soul fills your body. Now bring all this back to the Feast of Booths. That's where the whole story is going. And we know that water is the source of all life. The whole creation depends on water for its survival. And Jesus now has reached that final day, that climactic moment of the water ceremony, and he declares in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what does that mean? Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to, and notice this last word, receive. Friends, if you embrace Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the water of life, the Spirit in abundance. Now, very often we talk about the gift of salvation in negative terms. And that's okay. Because at salvation, there is something that is taken away. Right? You get the gift of salvation, guess what? My sins are taken away. They're gone. Our sins are pardoned. Our sins are atoned for. Our guilt is gone. My sin is buried in the deepest sea. I can never go find it again. It's gone. All that is true, but the gift of salvation is so much more than just what God took away. There's a reason we call it the gift 
of salvation. What exactly was the gift? Friends, here is the gift. Look at the last word. You receive. You receive the indwelling of the Spirit. The gift of salvation is the gift of the indwelling Spirit. That's what you get at salvation. The Spirit who comes and sanctifies you. And Jesus at the, bo- at the Feast of Booths knows that this wonderful gift is indeed coming. That's why he's promising it. But it's not here yet. And we are still six months away from his cross. So how will this particular chapter in Jerusalem end as the temple guard catches up with Jesus? Let's go ahead and read the remainder of the chapter, beginning with verse 40, and see how this ends. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, if I were to summarize those verses in a word, I'd choose the word confusion. Confusion. Who is Jesus? Do you notice, however, that the one option not discussed was whether Jesus was completely insane? Seriously. I mean, if this scene is, is, were repeated today, this wandering prophet just stood up in a crowd of religious context, claimed to be living water, wouldn't you say the guy is a lunatic? If you heard an ordinary man make the same statement Jesus made, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wouldn't you conclude he had some sort of mental issue? I would. C.S. Lewis put it so well. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Is Jesus completely insane? Or is he who he claims to be? Yahweh who loves the land. Well, the crowds advance two options. First of all, maybe Jesus is the prophet. That's back in verse 40. And we heard the same suggestion back in John chapter 6. Moses spoke of a coming great prophet. 
Despite having many prophets in her history, the Jews believed in the coming of one great prophet. Back in John 1, we learned the Jews thought that maybe John the Baptist was that prophet. And he answered, no, it's not me. So the crowd's question is actually a good one, because Jesus was, in fact, the great prophet. He is the second Moses who ushers in the whole new covenant. That is true. Second, the crowds also suggest that Jesus might indeed be the Christ. But here there is some confusion. The Christ must come from Bethlehem, from David's city, but Jesus came from Galilee. Or did he? I think we know the whole story. Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem, but raised in Galilee. He was indeed from David's city. So truly, in verse 40, there is some foreshadowing going on here. The crowds are well on their way to recognizing Jesus' true identity. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. But we won't see those crowds turn decisively toward Jesus until we come to Pentecost, when the river flows. Now, that's another option, and it's not to call Jesus a lunatic. That option won't do, and nobody ever advances that option. That option is to reject Jesus despite everything that he's said and done. That's the only other option. And that's the option the chief priests and the Pharisees choose. And they twist the Scripture to the conclusion that Jesus is actually cursed by the law. But even among them, this conclusion won't quite do. Nicodemus, whom we met back in John 3, shows up suddenly again in verse 50. And he at least is willing to give Jesus a further hearing. Maybe there is something more to this person. But Nicodemus is quickly met with rebuke from his fellow rulers. Their rebuke is one of contempt, not legality. Are you from Galilee too? So clearly their minds are made up. They're simply not going to tolerate anyone who has anything positive whatsoever to say about Jesus. Their minds are already made up. And this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at, friends. Jesus was not insane. He was not a lunatic. Jesus was who he claimed to be. Jesus was who he claimed to be. You've got to embrace him as the prophet, as the Christ, or write him off, but you cannot accept any middle position. Now, whatever became of those soldiers who came prowling through the streets, I picture them suddenly bursting out of their guardhouses like wolves in the scent. They're eager to track down Jesus. This is going to be fun. Let's go get him. But they come back empty-handed, much of the frustration of the religious rulers. I'm reminded of the final line of T.S. Eliot's poem, Hollow Men. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. They come back with their tails between their legs. Where is he? Why didn't you bring him? Look at verse 45. Why did you not bring him? Well, it's certainly not because Jesus and his disciples just battled him back in the streets. That's not what happened. It's not because Jesus stirred up a riot in the streets and then slipped to the crowds. That's not what happened. So why didn't you bring him? Why didn't they arrest Jesus? 
You know the answer is found? John 1, verse 1. This is the Logos. Look at verse 46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This is Yahweh speaking. So my friend, if you remain unconvinced about Jesus' true identity, and there may be people here like that this morning, let me encourage you to actually take some time and really listen to His voice. Listen to the voice of Jesus. If you have one of those red-letter Bibles, all right, all the words of the Bible are inspired by God. But if you actually want to hear the voice of Jesus, you can read those red letters. And ask yourself this very simple question, did anyone ever speak like this man? Did anyone ever speak like him? Friend, Jesus' voice is the voice of God speaking to you through the Word. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this delightful passage. We thank you for the coming of the Spirit. We pray that he would wash us, cleanse us, renew us, restore us. And as we approach this table now, may we allow your Spirit to work in our hearts, convict us of sin, show us where we need to repent, and turn our eyes again to Jesus. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.